0: 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've been talking here, and we're, uh, we're starting to wind this down, on the subject of hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says at the end, it's really all about, that chapter is about love. But at the end, it's talking about the gifts of the Spirit, and it says, but these, those gifts are going to pass away. Why? Because they're substitutes for the presence of God. They're, they're, they're not substitutes. They're, they're tastes. They're like, uh, 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 you know what an hors d'oeuvre is? An hors d'oeuvre is to whet your appetite for, for the real meal that's coming. An hors d'oeuvre is, is a sample of the real meal that's coming. It's not fake food, it's real food. But it's not enough to satisfy you unless you eat too much of it. But it's enough to whet your appetite for the real meal that's coming. For the real meal that's coming is what's going to fill you up and satisfy you. And the gifts of the Spirit are like that. They're a taste of God's presence. They're a taste of two things. They're manifestations to show you, first of all, that God is real. Because when we just see things in the natural, it's hard to believe that God is real. But when supernatural things begin to happen, then that's that's evidence to us that God is real, that He's there. And the second thing that they show us is something about God's nature and character, that He loves us, that He's good, He has our well-being. That's why the gifts of the Spirit will never embarrass you. They will never shame you. They will only edify you. They'll lift you up. They may correct you, but they will not embarrass you because it's not God's nature to embarrass you. That doesn't mean He won't tell you the truth. That means doesn't mean He won't correct you, but He will never tear you down. He will never beat you down. He will always build you up. He may correct you, but even when God corrects you, it encourages you because when God corrects you, He's saying, look, you can do this. You're just not bothering to. So He says, you can do better than that because that, He believes in what He's done in you. But then at the end of that chapter, it says, but when He comes when He comes in His fullness of His glory, we don't need those gifts of the Spirit because we're going to have Him. We don't need the hors d'oeuvre because we're going to have the meal. We're going to have the roast beef. We're going to have the the salmon. We're going to have the the dessert. We're going to have the real full meal deal. We're going to have it. So we don't need the hors d'oeuvres. But then He says, out of those, there are going to be three that survive. Faith, hope, and love. And we hear a lot about love, We hear a lot about faith. The name of this church contains the principle of faith. But the one we hear so little about is hope. And so we kind of forget about it or think it's really not that important. And so we've gone back and looked at some scriptures and look at two basic things, and I believe there's more, but the two basic reasons why hope is so important to us is it says in Hebrews 6 that it is the anchor of our soul, not faith, not love. It's the anchor of our soul. Now the reason we struggle with that sometimes is because we don't understand what the Bible means about hope. Because the term hope to us is something very different than what the Bible believes about hope. We mean by hope, usually, when we say, well, I hope so, what we mean is I wish it's going to happen. So if I ask you, you know, do you think the Patriots are going to win on Sunday? Well, I hope so. What we're really saying is, I wish it happens, you know. But the word in the Bible means something stronger than that. It means a confident, steadfast, enduring confidence that something good is going to happen. So it implies a good outcome, a positive outcome. That's why it's hope. It lifts our eyes off of where things are now or what things look about now and it tells us to look up because something better is going to happen. But it's not just I hope something's better is going to happen. It's a confident assurance that something better is going to happen and that's why it provides an anchor to our soul have you ever noticed your soul is because it consists of your emotions that it can go all over you, you have one day where you're just feeling great everything's going great God's on his throne you know, the devil's in his place and I'm just, you know we're going to go through to victory and you just go to bed just a big smile on your face oh, this is, the, I feel like I'm almost in heaven and you wake up the next morning and you don't know whether you're saved or not am I the only one who's ever had that experience? He says, what happened while I was asleep? What did I do? How did I get in trouble while I was asleep? You didn't do anything. It's just that your mind kept having thoughts while you were asleep and you wake up and those emotions aren't there. Then, you know, the circumstances of life start coming in on you and, you know, you thought you were this great faith giant when everything was going well and now things may not be going quite as well as they were when you felt so good and you find out that you don't feel quite as confident in that god 's there, and that god 's going to get you through, why because we 're so based what we believe and feel about the, on the circumstances. So we saw that the, 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 the example there is an anchor for a ship because a ship, when in the wind, with the tides changing in the wind, the ship can move all around different directions but when it's got its anchor overboard and the anchor is embedded in the bottom of the, the, the bed of the ocean or the water, then that ship, although it may move around, it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to blow away so hope provides that so no matter everything may be going wrong in your life but if you have hope from the bible then you will stay on course Amen. and so now but where does that come from and well, we looked at what what where it comes from and we saw that, that in the world when they use the term hope they're often based it on just thinking positively and that Bible hope is not based on positive thinking. It's positive, but it's not based on just positive thinking, because positive thinking means, I just think things are going to get better. I don't have any reason to base it on, but just because we get together and decide, yeah, it's going to be okay. You know, you ever... You tell somebody, it's going to be okay. And you have no idea whether it's going to be okay. Yeah. But you just want to feel better. You want them to feel better. But somewhere down inside, you don't have a lot of confidence because you're just trying to talk yourself into the fact it's going to feel better. You're trying to talk them into the fact it's going to feel better. That's positive thinking. But Bible hope is so much more solid than that because Bible hope is, is a confident expectation that something good's going to happen because God said so. So we've been talking lately about, all right, what's your hope based on? What's your hope based on? So first of all, we see, you've got to have hope. If you don't have hope, I didn't talk the second reason, the hope is so important. Because it says in Hebrews 11.1 that faith, which we've talked so much about, what faith will do is give substance to things hoped for. But that means if you're not hoping for something, your faith can't give substance to it because there's nothing to give substance to. It's like an architect's rendering, an architect's drawing design of what this building's going to look like. Now the engineers and the, and the contractors can begin to do plans and begin to put specifications together to bring that plan about. But if you don't have a design and a drawing, you don't know, you know, what do we do? Do we make it two stories, one story? Now with a house you may be able to do something, but with a building like this, or you know, Rick's built... Tons of building. You build them from designs and drawings, right? Otherwise, you don't know what to do. So faith without hope is like giving the contractor the money and the materials to go ahead, but you haven't told them what to build. And so many of us are in that place. We're trying to build our faith up, but we don't have hope out there for that faith to add substance to. So then we begin to look at what this hope is, what hope is. And then we begin to look at, but it's got to be founded on something. Otherwise, it's just positive thinking. And so that's what we began to talk about. Now, understand that you can have hope in all kinds of different things, and you should. But what we're going to begin to look at tonight, and we've already actually started, we're going to look at what the foundation of that hope needs to be in. Because if you don't have this foundation hope, all the rest of the hope won't make it. So what we're going to talk about tonight isn't the only hope you can have, but if you don't have this hope then you're going to miss it. And that's what happens. Many of us are out there trying to create, be hopeful about things, and we've neglected the foundation for our hope. So we're trying to hope we're going to feel better. We're trying to hope that 2013 will be a better year than 2012. 2012, many of you went through some significant challenges. Some of them were health challenges. Some of them were, there were financial challenges. And, and many of you are still in the middle of those challenges. So you come into... Two th- and isn't that why, you know, they throw parties on New Year's? While we're start- Do you understand? It's just a different day. You know, January 1st is just a different day than December 31st, yet because it's flipping over a new calendar with a new year, and somehow that gives us a hope that maybe I'll lose those 25 pounds this year. Or, or a new hope that maybe I'll get a better job this year. Or a hope because it's like a clean start in a way. And yet in reality, you brought into 2013 everything you were left in 2012. You don't get a clean start. It's not like all your debts don't get canceled on December 31st. Wouldn't that be wonderful? All your debts get canceled on, on December 31st. All your sicknesses go away. All, everything wrong in your life. And you get a brand new. Wouldn't it be nice? But that's not the way it works. And yet we pretend it is. So we have this great celebration. Now, in here we do it a little differently. But the world out there throws parties. People get drunk. Celebrating a new year. And there's nothing new. You ever think about that? Why do they do that? Because they're trying to create some reason to have hope that this year is going to be different than last year and in reality they don't have any reason to believe it. That's why they've got to get drunk (laughs) to celebrate because if they think about it there's no reason to be hopeful. The problem is you wake up the next day, not only don't you have any more reason of you got a massive headache. I never taught this before. <laughs> you need to know what your hope is founded in. Because we think in the same... I'll be talking about Sunday morning. We think the way the world thinks, and so we're hopeful. We don't know what... What are you hopeful for? We're going to look at the end of the study because when you ought to be asked... When somebody asks asks you, in the middle of what's going wrong, and there's going to be more go wrong this year in the world than went wrong last year, there's no reason to have hope in our leaders, any of them, either side of the aisle. There's no reason to have hope in the economy of the world. There's no reason to have hope. But that doesn't mean we should be without hope because we of all people should, not, should have hope. But the problem is we've based our hope in the same things that the world's based its hope in, and it doesn't even know what it's based on. So we're trying to be more hopeful people without knowing what our hope is based on. So the scriptures tell us and we we'll look at the end. Somebody asks you, what's your hope? And you ought to be able to tell them. So you need to know, begin to ask yourself, what's my hope? So what we're going to look at tonight, and again, we've already kind of started this, is, is what's the foundation of your hope? So you can hope that God's going to bring, because you're believing for that, that God's going to give you a better job, or God's, you're going to have a job this year. You're, you're going to hope that your wife will finally get straightened out, and she can hope you'll finally get straightened out. You know, that was a joke, by the way. Because <laughs> if you're hoping that, you're the one that needs to get straightened out. So whatever it is you've got, you, that's, that you know in your life needs to be better, you need to understand, ask yourself, what's the basis for having hope that that's going to happen? And it's fine to be hopeful for those things. But here's why ultimately we don't have the confidence. Did you find 1 Corinthians 15? Nope. I just wanted to make sure I gave you time to do that. We've already talked about this verse. Paul writes this. Now this is the Apostle Paul writing this this is not an unbeliever this is Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament if in this life only we have hope in Christ we are of all men the most pitiable now we read this several weeks ago and I never saw this in this verse before but it, it just exploded in me notice he's not saying if we as Christians only have hope in this life then we're, that's how I'd always read it that if we only have hope as Christians in this life, then we're the most we are among most men to be most pitiable. But he says, if we in this life, if we only have hope in Christ in this life, in other words, if our only hope is what Jesus has done for us here, and that's a lot. He's paid for the healing of our bodies, He's paid for the forgiveness of our sins. He's paid so that we no longer have to be ashamed of our failures, of our weaknesses. He's paid so that we can overcome those weaknesses. He's paid so that the Spirit of God can come and dwell in us. He's paid so that in this life we can be sons and daughters of the living God and live in a a living vital relationship with Him as a son and as a daughter with Him. He's paid that we can have all of these things in this life. But Paul says if that's all the hope we have, we're no different than the world. So there's something missing, Paul's saying, if what we hope for, and we are to hope for those things. We are to have confidence in those things and that those things are increasing and getting better. It's not that we're to ignore them. We are to take tremendous confidence in those things and have hope in those things. But what he's saying is if the foundation for your hope is only in what Christ has done for you here, then that's not good enough. We're really no different than the world. That's an astounding statement. So we're going to look tonight at what that hope needs to be in, and this is what we rarely think about. Now, earlier generations of the church got caught up in this hope, and they didn't realize that there were things you could be hopeful for here. So they put everything off to the next life. And they figured, well, we can just, we just, God expects us to just be miserable here, go without anything here, and our only hope is what's going to happen after this life is over. But that's not scriptural either. Because yeah. Paul says, there's things to hope for in this life that Jesus has paid for. But we've gone to the other extreme, and our whole perspective, our whole view is on what we receive here from God. Yeah. And that's the hors d'oeuvre. And we've settled for the hors d'oeuvre. But I don't know about you, hors d'oeuvres don't satisfy me. Or <laughs> Years ago, this is before we had any children. We were first married, we had very good friends of ours that were in the church that we were originally in. We weren't saved at the time, they weren't saved. I don't think anybody else in the church was saved. We got saved while we were in that church. But it was in spite of the church we got saved. It was God's grace working in our lives. And these dear friends invited us over we, we we thought it was for dinner. So remember that. So we went over and we're sitting there, you know, and they brought out, you know, coke or something to drink, and then she passes around these little cheese and crackers, you know. And we're talking back and forth, and she passes around the cheese and crackers and have another ginger ale or whatever, and you know, it's like it's about six seven o'clock, and I'm it's dawning on me. This isn't for dinner. <laughs> so I start eating every cheese and cracker I can find. <laughs> and we had a wonderful time talking to them, but I left there hungry. <laughs> and that's where so much of the church is. We're settling for the cheese and crackers. And the cheese and crackers aren't designed by God to sustain us in this life. Well, then what is? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. And and, and as I was meditating on this this afternoon, I'm thinking, God began to show me my own attitude towards this. And if I have this attitude or have had this attitude, most likely there's more than one or two of you out there that have had this same view, and not, may not have realized it. Because you know, our mind is capable of dividing things into different categories, like spiritual and secular. So we have an idea that, that this is the spiritual thing we do. We come to church and we, 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 we hear the Word of God and we praise God and we, we, we read our Bibles and we pray to talk to God, and, and that's the spiritual thing, but the rest of our life, the eating, the drinking, you know, the 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 bathing, the getting dressed, the going to work, all those are secular and they have nothing to do with each other. And with that mindset, we're capable of living one way in church and a different different way out in the world because we have the divided into two different categories. And, and 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 in God's eyes, in God's mind, there's no difference. Because the food you ate, He created. The clothes you put on, ultimately he created. You know, somebody may have made them, but it came out of materials that he created. And so th- th- he made this material world. And, and Eastern religion and a lot of philosophies try to tell you that, you know, God's above all that. And God would never deal with in the natural material realm. He's too spiritual for that. So therefore he doesn't, you know, what happens to your body is not of importance to him. So if your body has sickness in it, that's not important to God. He only cares about your eternal soul. But God made your body. Amen. That's the basis of some heresies. There's heresies out there, and especially in the first century, that taught that Jesus could not actually have been a man. Because God could not have been, a holy God could not have actually taken on flesh. So they would come up literally with this rationalization that although he appeared as a man, he wasn't really one. That he didn't actually touch the ground. He didn't actually touch people. He came came supernaturally close, so it looked as if he touched them, but he really didn't. I mean, you've got to really stretch it to come up to that conclusion, especially when the Scriptures say he took on flesh and dwelt among us. But see, when you've got your own idea of what God's like, and you refuse to be open to what the Bible says God's like, you'll make this, interpret this Bible in line with your own beliefs. And that's a dangerous thing to do. That's idolatry. Idolatry isn't just when you have a statue on your dashboard. Idolatry is when you make God what you want Him to be. Right. Instead of finding out who He really is. I don't know how I got off on that. Okay. All right. Oh, yes. And so not only do, can we draw this separation between church life and secular life and be comfortable in both worlds but we can also do that in terms of, 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 of relating to God here and now and heaven so yeah that's in the sweet bind but I don't need to think about that now because I'm living in the ugly here and now and yet we're seeing that what you think about and what you know about the next life is critical to how well you're able to live in this life and this is what we're going to see. And this is what God began to show me. He says, you have had an attitude about the rewards and an attitude about the things we're going to read that that they're really not important to think about now. They're not important to be aware of now. Okay. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 15. I therefore also, as I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... And your love for all the saints do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayer. So this is how Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, the Christians at Ephesus. And this was his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. I pray this almost every day you might know what is the hope, that's what we're talking about, of His calling. So God has called us, each one of you, God has called you. And He's called you into a hope, something to be hopeful about. And Paul prayed for them that God would open the eyes of their understanding so that they would see not with these natural eyes, but with these eyes on the inside, that they would see the hope of His calling for their life that's in Christ Jesus. Now, we've looked at before, and one of my favorite scriptures is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, which says, Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor is it entered into the hearts of men all that God has prepared for those who love Him. That means God has prepared things for you, you haven't seen yet. That you haven't heard of yet, nor has it even entered into your heart, the things that God has for you. But the next verse says, but His Spirit has been given to you, to reveal them to you, to open your eyes to see them. And here Paul is praying, that that would happen for the church at Ephesus. Alright, now what's this calling, that's to be the basis of our hope? What is the riches? Anybody like riches? You just like poverty, right? Anybody here like to be rich? Now, when when rich is a relative term, and I don't mean that that means your relatives have it. Maybe. Rich is based on who's talking about it. Now, we've been in southern Mexico out in the jungle villages where, where, where if you have a bicycle, you're rich. If you have a motorcycle, you're filthy rich. If you have running water, you're a wealthy person in that village. But around here, we just take those things for granted. So the reason you're rich there is because nobody else has it. Around here, bicycles kind of, you know, unless you're not old enough to drive a car, a bicycle is something we use for exercise or for recreation, but it's not necessary for getting around because we have better means of transportation. So for us, a bicycle doesn't make you rich. Now, I don't know what you drive, but if, if Bill Gates came to your house and looked in your garage, and he saw what you drive, and he remembers what's in his garage, what you drive, he may not consider as rich because he may be driving... Something a little more expensive than your driving. His concept of rich is different than your concept of rich. We're talking about God's riches. Is that getting your interest now? We're not talking about what's rich to a young pastor in southern Mexico... We're not even talking about what's rich to Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or some Shah in Iran. In God's eyes, they're poor. Because what they wear on their ring, on their fingers, and around their wrists, he paves his streets with. His city's gates. Are made of solid pearls. Those are his building materials. <laughs> so when we're talking about the riches of his glory, don't think in riches in terms of what you think rich is. This is why we've got to see it with an inner eye, not with the limited understanding of our mind. But he's not talking here about money. See, understand, God doesn't use money. I know it's handy down here. But God doesn't use money. Because when you can open your mouth and create things, you don't need money. See, that's why Paul said, I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to abound. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus wasn't limited by how much he had or how little he had. He wasn't limited by whether he had a boat to get to the other side or he didn't have a boat to get to the other side. The circumstances of this life and the resources of this life didn't limit what he could do because he had learned how to tap into a source that was beyond the boat builders, beyond the banks of that day, beyond the natural sources of everything that people relied upon and put their hope in. His hope was not in the material things that he used in this life. He used them, enjoyed them, but his hope wasn't founded in them. And as a result... He wasn't limited. by the, I've never said this before. But what your hope is in, would, would you sit up please? Thank you. What your hope is in is what your confidence is going to be in. You understand that? And this is what we're talking about. What your hope is in. So if your hope is in the things of this world, that's where your confidence is going to be in. And we can be hopeful about changing them. We can be hopeful about them getting better. But if the foundation of your hope is in the things of this world, then, what you're, then you are basing your hope on a world that's controlled by the God of this world. And Jesus didn't do that. Okay? All right. Let's go with this now that you may know the hope of His calling. So He's calling you into something that's got a hope in it. And what is it? What are the riches, God's riches, of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. You have an inheritance. You may not have any relative here that has any money. But you've got a father. You've got a father you've got a father that has an inheritance stored up for you. And say, so here's the battle we again. And says, yeah, but I could use some of that here. <laughs> but understand this. If your confidence is in only what you get here, then this is what God was showing me today. Then the, you have the foundation for your confidence is in the things of this world. And the scriptures are clear. That's what we're looking at. And there's many more we could look at. That your hope cannot be founded in what's here. But your hope has to be founded in the inheritance that God has for you. And that begins to change your perspective. Because if your hope is founded and your confidence is founded in what's going to happen to you here, then you're going to try to hold on to here as very dear to you. Hebrews chapter 2 says that the basis of all bondage is the fear of death. Jesus came to destroy the power of death. Why? Because the power of death was the fear of what's going to happen to me when I die. So we live most of our life trying to avoid the fact that we're going to die. But I've got news for you You are. Because this life is temporary. Whether you're 10 years old, 20 years old, 30 years old, 60 years old, 80 years old, you don't know whether you have tomorrow or not. It's not guaranteed to any of us. And we don't need to live afraid of it, but until we know what that hope is, not just, oh, I hope it's going to be, I hope I'm going to heaven, but it is a confident expectation that becomes the foundation for your life then you know you are safe and secure here let me give you an example of what I meant there was a young person that came to us a number of years ago that had been given a a very bad report by the doctor in fact it was a report basically that they had an incurable disease that it was fatal And, and I remember Pastor Ray was trying to encourage them and he's in there giving them scriptures about healing. And this Pastor Rachel is so just full of all those things and encouragement. And he's giving encouragement. And I walked in, I really felt led to come in and just say something to this young person. And as I go to go over to them to say something encouraging, I heard the Lord in me so clearly say, ask them if they're ready to die. And I said, I can't do that. I mean, they're in here looking for encouragement. <laughs> they're in here wanting to be told that God's made promises that if you believe him, you won't have to die. And I'm saying, Lord, I can't do that. They're in here for encouragement and you want me to ask them if they're ready to die? He said, yes, because until they're prepared to die, everything they're believing will be founded on the fear of what's going to happen when I die. And I could suddenly see this structure of scriptures that God will heal you, God will do all these things, these promises, but if the underlying motive for believing that God's going to heal me is I'm afraid I'm going to die, it's still rooted in fear. And that's why many people don't receive their healing They're doing all the right things. They're meditating on scriptures. They're reading books. They're confessing it. But their motive for all of that is they're afraid of dying. And so the root of all of their faith is still based on fear. And until you establish that foundation... See, this is why we get so busy taking care of the issues of this life we don't ever think about what the Scripture says God has waiting for us. I've talked to several people in my lifetime as a Christian who had the experience of dying, going to heaven, and coming back. And there are a number of things in their story that are similar. But the one, one of the two, overriding things, and I've heard testimonies of other people that I didn't meet And I've heard their story. The one overriding result of that was from that point on, they had no fear of death. No fear of death. And it changed their perspective on life. Brother Hagen, who started the school that we went to, I've heard him say, until you're prepared to die, you're not really ready to live. Because you spend all of your life trying to hold on to something you ultimately can't hold on to. And not preparing yourself for the inevitable that is to come. So Paul's perspective, what gave Paul an anchor through all the stuff he's gone through, and we've talked before about some of these things. Again, if you think you're having a bad day, read through some of the stuff Paul went through. And he had discouragements. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He came to the point of he despair even of life. But he came out of that because there was a hope. He put his hope in the God of comfort. So there was a hope. And we may not like to look at this, but the, we have to look at it if we're going to have a foundation that's going to get us through whatever's coming. And this is what the Bible says about it. It may not be what psychologists tell you. It may not be what your parents tell you may not be what your friends tell you, but this is what God tells us we need to be... So you've got to have the right foundations in your life. Jesus talked about that in, in Matthew chapter 7. He talked about two men that built houses. Same houses, same designs, same materials. But when a storm came, one of them stood in the storm and the other fell apart even though we're made of the same material, the same design, and the same contractor. So it wasn't the design, it wasn't the materials, and it wasn't the contractor. The only difference between those two houses was the foundation on which they were built. So the foundation, and this is what we often don't look at. We don't think about it, because we don't think, we just go through life and deal with issues without looking at the foundation things of what we're believing in, what we're trusting in, what our hope's in, what our faith is in. And the overwhelming evidence in the Scriptures is that the foundation for our hope of our confident expectation for a good future has to be in the future that God has for us after this life. And we'll see in a minute how that begins to change us the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now go with me over to Titus chapter 2 right before Hebrews. There's little Philemon stuck in there but right before Hebrews. Now, this is not always easy to start looking at. If you've ever been a life insurance salesman, you understand. People don't want to talk to a life insurance salesman because they don't want to face the fact I'm going to die and then pay for something they're not going to get the benefit of. Verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us, To deny ungodliness, worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Now how are we going to do that? What's going to motivate us to do that? Looking to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So what helps us to live godly in this life? What helps us to live soberly in this life? It is the blessed hope of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are several scriptures where it says He's returning for those who are looking forward to His return. And I began to look at myself and ask myself, Am I really looking forward to His return? Or am I hoping it waits for a while? Now, there's one reason motive for waiting for His return is so that more people can get into the kingdom of God. But some of us are, want to put off His return because we're not quite ready to think we're going to face Him. And we're going to look at Him in it and that's why we're having trouble having hope in His calling because we're not convinced we're ready to face Him. So we see here a connection between having the right foundation for our hope when your, when your perspective on life is this is a hand's breath. It's short. It's temporary. It's interesting. I am turned 67 last year. My goodness, that means I'll be 68 this year. <laughs> and, and I look back. This year we'll be married 46 years. But then we've got our youngest sons are 31, and I, and I hear them come back for Christmas and talk about how they feel like they're getting old. and my granddaughter starts talking about how fast time's going and you realize how short this time here is and you're not guaranteed any number of days so even living a long full life which the bible tells us god wants for us even with its 80 years 90 years some woman 114 just died but she died <laughs> And it came to an end. It goes so fast. And we try to hold on to it. Why? Because we're trying to get our hope and our confidence from something that slips through our fingers. I remember when we were still in our young 20s. I was still in law school. I remember, every, I remember Sunday nights because I don't know why it was just, you know, like somehow it was that part of the week that it brought it to mind because well, I guess the week was over and I was beginning a new week I remember setting the alarm clock and getting into bed and realizing another week of my life is gone now this is before we were saved and it would scare me I'm 22 years old 23 years old it would scare me my life slipping through my fingers that was 50 some years ago no 40 some years ago like that so if I base my hope in the fact that I was going to be a lawyer if I base my hope in the fact that we could then have a nice house if I base my hope it's fine to have hope for those things but if the foundation hope of my life what gives me hope for life going forward is those things then I am to be pitied because those things are very shaky ground for the foundation of our life. Not only that, when that's the hope, whatever your hope is in, it will affect how you live your life. So if my hope is in the kingdom of God that's to come, then that's going to govern what I do. And it does. I govern my life, not perfectly yet, but I govern my life By this this realization, I have that there will come a day when I will stand before the Lord and give an account of what I have done with my life, whether I like it or not. So I'm wise to prepare for that now. I will give an account for how faithful I've been to Him for you. Says in James, don't desire to be a teacher. Because a teacher has a stricter standard of judgment. Why? And that's to any leader because their, uh, their, their actions and their heart affects the lives of many people that are important to God. So I govern my life by that. That means there's things that may be okay for other people to do. I cannot let myself do. Why? Because doing that then creates even an attitude in my heart. See, I've got to... Not just watch what I do outwardly. I've got to watch attitudes in my heart because those attitudes will creep into my preaching. And the spirit, that's why you've got to be careful who you submit under because you will pick up the spirit that they operate in. So there are many good people out there but there's a spirit there's a spirit of they're, they're doing their own thing. They're establishing their own way. They may be doing good things, but the underlying motive and spirit isn't the glory of God. It's something that they want to see done. And you will subtly pick that spirit up because there's things that are communicated other than just the words. That's why the book of... I didn't plan to get into this at all tonight. That's why the book of Proverbs talks so much about a father instructing his son in who to hang out with his friends. Because your friends will determine the attitudes you have. Not just the habits, but attitudes are contagious. That's why, parents, you shouldn't just discipline the actions, you should discipline the attitude. Correct the attitude. Because a child that stands there and says, all right, I'll do what you say, like this. They may be outwardly obeying you, but that inner attitude is contagious. Rebellion is contagious. Those are spiritual attitudes of the heart. So I have to govern my attitudes towards people, towards situations. Because my attitude will eventually affect the attitude in this church and I will give an account for that. So that governs how I conduct myself. And that's what, that's what Titus is talking about here. Let's go over quickly to, chap, to, um, uh, to chapter... Well, let's go to 1 John. Because he, he addresses this. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 28. Find chapter 3 and go back two verses. And now little children... So for those people that will teach you that First John was not written to Christians... There's one evidence that they're wrong. Now little children abide in Him. That means maintain a living relationship with Him. So that when He appears, we may have confidence. That's what we've been talking about. He is going to appear... He is coming back, and we will all appear before Him. And for many of us, we want to avoid that, we want to look away from that, we're afraid of it. Why? Because we're afraid of what's going to happen when we stand in front of Him. Therefore, we don't put our hope in that. We're hoping we don't have to stand in front of Him. Actually, if you understand the Scriptures, if you don't ever stand in front of Him, you're in real trouble. (laughs) And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence. So God wants you to have confidence now for what it's going to be like when you stand in front of Him. That we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, how can we have that confidence that we're not ashamed before him and are confident to stand before him? Notice he doesn't tell us at this point to go get your life straightened out. What does he tell us to do so that we'll have confidence before him? Now, little children, Abide in Him. Maintain a living, vital, ongoing relationship with Him. Now for many Christians, that even sounds strange. Because many Christians believe in Him, but don't have a relationship with Him. I know I have a relationship with my wife. She's not a concept to me. She's not just a, she's not a role to me. Yes, she's my wife but she's far more than that. She's Anita. She's my lover. She's my best friend. I spend more time talking with her, thinking about her, than any other person. It's so neat. I've got to be careful. I to digress here. But you just forgive me. I was cleaning out an old drawer the other day, which I've been meaning to get to, but I finally cleaned it out. It's amazing the things you find in old drawers when you clean it out. And I found at the bottom of this I found a Bible I'd been given when I was eight years old by the pastor of the church I had at the time. And and I found... But I found... (laughs) I was afraid to do this because the emotion is going to... I found her graduation picture from nurse's training, which was taken right before we got married. And look at that picture, which is a couple of years old. And all the emotion, all the feeling, all the passion that I felt as a 21-year-old when I first met her rose up in me. She's not a concept to me. There's a living, and it's growing. We're still getting to know each other in ways we've never, we're still growing we they're learning about each other. It's a project in terms of... It's, a, it's an endless goal. We're never satisfied with it. That's what it means to abide. And mo- most Christians don't realize that they can do that with Him. That's why I've been encouraging you throughout your day. Just say I love you. Just be conscious of Him. It doesn't require 14 hours of prayer, fasting... This when Paul says, pray without ceasing. Does that mean we're to be on our knees 24 hours a day? No. Paul just talked to him throughout the day. But when you're in a relationship with someone... But most of us are rude. Aren't you glad he's gracious? Yeah. He's in you all day, and we go through the day and never talk to him. Get up in the morning, go through the day, you know, drive to work, never say hello, never talk to him. Well, he's God. Yeah, but that's how you develop a relationship with him. And notice what he says if we'll develop that relationship with him and abide in him, then when he returns, we'll have confidence ahead of time to stand before him. Why? Because you've already been talking to him. If he has issues with you, he's already worked on them with you. Not only that, it gets better. We've got to move along here quickly. That we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you will know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Behold, what manner of judgment the Father has on us that we should be afraid of Him. Look at your Bibles. Some of you aren't looking at your Bibles. That's not what He says. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. He doesn't want you afraid of His coming. He's coming as your Father who loves you. And the reason we shrink back from Him is we don't understand how much He loves us. He's our Father. He knows every wart you have. He knows every blemish you have. He knows every mistake you've made. He knows everything you were going to do wrong before you did. And He still loves you. He just wants you. And we shrink back. Because we're ashamed. Well, I'm not measuring up. I'm not, you know, I've fallen down here. I haven't done what I'm supposed to do here. My life's a mess. I'm not doing what I should do right here. So we hold back from him. So we hear he's coming back again, and we're going to appear before. Oh, I don't want that to happen now. But that's because we don't understand how much he loves us. If he wanted to judge us, we're all puddles of boiling oil. We're all fried but he loves you. He just wants you to, and see, once you taste, that's it says taste and see. Once you taste that relationship, once you taste that he's real, he's not a concept, he's not an ideal, he's not a principle, he's not a belief, he's a real living being. Far more real, far more alive than you are, or anybody you know. And he lives in you, and he wants to reveal himself to you. Once you get a taste of that it changes you and that's what John's writing about here and that's my brothers and sisters what eternal life is John John 17 3 and this is eternal life not heaven but to know him and the only begotten son to know him okay quickly we got to end this Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it didn't know Him. Beloved, now, not when you get to heaven, now you are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. In other words, now's the hors d'oeuvre. But the full course meal hasn't been revealed yet. But I can smell it. But we know that when he's revealed, we shall be like him. And that's our confidence. That we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Over in chapter 4, it says that, that, um, that we, are, we are like him. Okay, but I was to finish here. Beloved... Now we are children of God. It's not yet been revealed we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as He is pure. We're doing it backwards. We're trying to purify ourselves so we can have the hope. We're trying to clean ourselves up so that we can be presentable before Him so that we can be hopeful when He comes. And the only way you have strength to clean yourself up is by abiding in Him, is by coming to Him. Years ago I heard somebody say, well, you know, I'm not ready to give my life to the Lord because my life's a mess. That's like saying, before I take a bath, I need to take a shower because I'm too dirty to take a bath. No, the reason you take the bath... And so you'll get cleaned up. The reason you come to Him is only He can clean you up. But we can come to Him because He loves us like a Father. He's not going to stand there and judge you and reject you. Now, if you turn around and reject Him ultimately, then you leave Him no choice. But ultimately, to leave you with your choice of rejecting Him. But He will keep coming after you, and coming after you, and coming after you, and coming after you. And Psalm 139 says, He will go literally to the gates of hell with you, knocking at the door of your heart, pleading with you to open the door and let Him in. But if you refuse to let Him in, He will not violate your will. He will let you Go into hell and eternal damnation. But it will not be because he doesn't love you. It will not be because he has not done everything that he can to woo you and draw you to himself. But all you've got to do is taste. The church needs to taste. The church need, We've done so much by faith, and that's good. But we need to taste that he's real and he loves you. Because when you do, church is now something you line up at the door to get in. Yes. Prayer is not a burden; it's something I can't wait to do all day long. You, there's somebody exciting you want to talk to. Just think about who your idol. If you're, if you're, a, if you're a sports fan, you know whether it's Kobe Bryant or somebody, Imagine if you had a chance to go talk to the, the most favorite person that you on this earth. You got a chance to spend some time with talking. Boy, you was, oh, I got to go talk to them. No, you'd be ready. You'd be woke up. Why? Because you can't wait to find out. And they're just like you and me. In some cases, worse. So when you've tasted what he's like, how much he loves you, how real he is, how much he cares about you, how much he wants to be involved and help you and, and, and so that you're never alone again and you begin to taste it, you want to know him. And the more you begin to want to know him, the more you draw near, and the Bible says the more you draw near to him, the more he'll draw near to you. This is our hope. If our hope is founded on a new house, a new car, those are wonderful things to have hope for. But if your hope is founded in those things, then those things are shaky, and you will not ultimately have confidence. But if your hope is founded in the promises of the Word of God, of how much He loves you, if your hope is founded in His calling for your life, then He can begin to build Healthy, solid other hopes in your life. And you will live a life of confident expectation, and nothing will move you, just as nothing moved Peter, nothing moved Paul, nothing moved other people that have built that hope, and nothing moved Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you've not left us in this world on our own. You've not left us without instructions, without a way of knowing what you believe, what you know, and what you want us to know. Father, so many of us tonight here are are living, trying to live our lives really without hope. We're grasping for things and trying to hold on to things to give us some hope for tomorrow or the day after or the year after or this is going to be a better year. Open the eyes of our understanding that we might truly see the hope of your calling for our lives that you've given to us in Christ Jesus. Father, I ask you to take the word that's been sown into our heart by your spirit tonight and begin to develop in us an understanding from your perspective of the hope of your calling for our life. In Jesus' name, amen.